Welcome to Russian History Retold, episode 150. The Mongol Invasion. Did it really matter? Well, last time we covered the aftermath of the Crimean War. And today, for episode 150, and i got to tell you, I don't believe it's actually been that many episodes. You know, as I've said before, I only planned on maybe 50. But we have this, you know, the numbered episodes, 150, and we've probably got about another 20 of the other types, the short ones. So... You know, this was an important event, so I want to go back 600 years to the invasion of a horde from the east, the Mongols. Uh, many of you are wondering, why would we discuss whether the Mongol invasion had any influence on history or culture and society of Russia? Of course it did. Well, you'd be really surprised that there's a major debate on the subject. There are many historians who would argue that there was very little influence while others argue the exact opposite. It'll be my job today to present you with all the information so you can decide for yourself. In doing so, I will be utilizing more material than I have for any other podcast to date. There's more books than I've ever opened up to look into this to see all the different you know, points of view. Uh, we're going to go from first-hand accounts to scholarly debates, from religious interpretations to the thoughts of Tolstoy, Pushkin, and Dostoevsky. We will be hearing from historians like Platanov, Kliuchevsky, Vernadsky, Ryazanovsky, and Steinberg. All in all, I hope that this podcast will open up your minds to an event and era that is one of the most profound in all of Russian history. Let's start with some quotes from different historians to gain a perspective on the differing points of view. The first comes from Sergei Fyodorovich Platonov, who led the St. Petersburg School of Imperial Historiography before and after the Russian Revolution. He was considered to be a Slavophile, as he believed that the Russian history that he was studying was one of a purely Slavic nature, with little outside influence. He is quoted as writing, quote, And how could the Mongol influence on Russian life be considerable? when the Mongols lived far off, did not mix with the Russians, and came to Russia only to gather tribute or as an army, bought in for the most part by Russian princes for the prince's own purposes. Therefore, we can proceed to consider the internal life of Russian society in the 13th century without paying attention to the fact of the Mongol yoke. Well, you got to admit, he does have his points. The Golden Horde, the successor to the Mongol Empire, had its capital in Sarai, somewhat under a hundred, about a thousand miles away from Moscow and Kiev, a long distance, obviously, in medieval times. And they did, for the most part, stay away. Then we have George Vernadsky, who lived in the early to late 20th century with his view of Russian culture as the synthesis of Slavonic, Byzantine, and nomadic influences. He writes, quote, a convenient method of gauging the extent of Mongol influence on Russia is to compare the Russian state and society of the pre-Mongol period with those of the post-Mongol era, and in particular to contrast the spirit and institutions of Muscovite Russia with those of the Russia of the Kievan era. The picture changed completely after the Mongol period. His points, of course, come across quite strong as well. The Muscovite era and the Kievan were quite different. The apanage system, as you may remember from past podcasts, was tearing at the fabric of Russia at the time, causing brother to fight brother and causing total disunity throughout the countryside. 
Afterwards, Russia was led by a strong ruler, a czar. As you can see, vastly differing points of view. But before we begin the debate, let's go over the invasion itself again. In 1223, on the river Kalka, the Mongols defeated a large army led by a number of grand princes of the realm. It has been estimated the Mongols had about 20,000 men, while the Russians had close to 80,000. How might, you ask, do the invaders defeat such a numerically superior force? The Mongols knew that there was disunity within the defenders' ranks. The invaders had a very sophisticated advanced scouting system that they had used extensively when they overran China years before, also overcoming far larger forces than their own. On top of it, no one had ever seen a fighting force like the Mongols, who fought with great skill on their horses. But strangely, after destroying the Russian army at the Battle of the Kalka River, the Mongols disappeared. The defenders believed that they had God on their side, and despite losing in battle, they convinced themselves that they had scared off the infidels. Of course, as we all know, this was not to be, as just 13 years later, they returned in a big way, now with more than their own troops. They returned in greater numbers, over 75,000 men, and their retinues came, 40,000 of them being Turkic auxiliaries. Commanded by Batu Khan and Subadai, they steamrolled through the countryside, destroying everything in their wake. In 1237, they sacked Ryazan, killing every living creature as a warning to others that if they resisted, the same fate would be in store. A number of cities fought back, all unsuccessfully. Vladimir, Kolomna, Rostov, Yaroslavl, and ten others were wiped out with Kiev in 1240 the once mighty city being turned into nothing more than a collection of huts that would take hundreds of years to rebuild. The only two towns that were spared the Mongols' wrath were Peskov and Novgorod, both saved by the weather, which made it hard for their horses to travel. Both cities, though, decided not to press their luck and began to pay tribute to their new overlords. From here, we have very little argument from the experts that the Mongol invasion had a significant effect on Russia in 1240. It has been estimated that over 500,000 people were killed in the three-year invasion, which represents about 7% of the population. Why don't you just think about that a little bit? 7% of the population. This is far greater than some of the other percentage losses of wars that we've seen in the, uh, the recent 20th century. It was just mind-boggling to think how many people actually died. And they're just cities were littered with bodies. And that's what many of the experts, at the or not the experts, but the people at the time who wrote about it were appalled by the, just the vast number of bodies that they would find. Now, some of the major population centers, like Kiev, didn't recover for centuries. And new cities came to the forefront, though, like Tver and Moscow, because of the invasion. But here's where things begin to become debated. When it came to religion, the Mongols were very tolerant of the local beliefs, in part, some say, because they kind of wanted to hedge their bets. Although they were in the business of gathering tribute and not converting people to their animalistic shaman religion. Even after many of them converted to Islam, they still had a hands-off approach to religion in the areas they dominated. So their influence on the Russian Orthodox Church was minimal, or so one might think. 
they actually have a huge impact on the spread of people throughout the countryside, many of whom who started monasteries and hermitages, fleeing from the devastation. On top of it, almost all pagan worship was wiped out by the Mongols, with the Russian Orthodox Church using the slaughter as a calling to the people that the reason it occurred was God's wrath on the Rus, and the only way to be saved was to look to the church. The barrier that was created by the Mongols sealing Russia from Europe also greatly benefited the church, as it eliminated any missionary work that the Roman Catholic Church might have done. They also shielded Russia from the Reformation and, of course, the Renaissance. Post-invasion in 1274, Metropolitan Kirill created a council to address the problems in the Orthodox Church, which he believed caused the Mongol horde to attack Russia because of the wrath of God, as I said before. According to Daniel Shubin in his book, The History of Russian Orthodoxy, Volume 1, there were three major edicts that were sent down to the believers. They're rather surprising to me to, and to those of us today because we don't think of priests doing what the edicts demanded they stop. First off was a rule, quote, against simony and the avarice of bishops regarding the ordination of lower clergy. Well, basically, this was to stop the selling of bishoprics and priesthoods to whoever could afford them. The expenses of ordination were to be paid to the church, but it was pegged at 70 kopecks and no more. Because what they were doing, it was going to the highest bidder, and they would go into really large sums. And then these people would become the priests, and they would get all the donations from the parishioners, and they would feed off of that. The next edict was, quote, against alcoholism amongst priests. Well, at the time, it was a huge problem in Russia and would continue basically until the Russian Revolution over some 650 years later. The, amazingly, the worst time of drunkenness of the priests were holy fast days like Palm Sunday and All Saints Day on November 1st. Now, the third one was aimed at the lay people, and that was an edict, quote, against fist fighting, against pagan festivities on Saturday nights. Paganism was still rampant in Russia at the time of the Mongol invasion, and the church was hell-bent on eradicating it. According to pagan tradition, people would get together on Saturday nights, and men would fight to their deaths. Not only that, but there were reports of orgies afterwards. The council forbade priests from giving last rites or holding a memorial service for anyone dying at such an event. Economically, of course, the Mongols devastated Russia. The heavy taxes, most of which were collected by princes of the realm, like Ivan Kalita, Ivan Moneybags, also known as Ivan I. It was his efficient collection of tribute that was important in the growth and influence of Moscow. The people, though, were made to pay dearly for not getting attacked and either killed or sold into slavery. This was another impetus to moving away from the big cities and to the wilderness of places like the Urals in Siberia. The domination of the Mongols for about 200 years caused a great deal of cultural regression. Remember that Kiev was one of the largest cities in the world at one time, the center of Russian society and culture, although it was on the downward spiral, and its legacy was starting to get tarnished uh, before the invasion. Still, instead of cultural activities like art and music, the Russian people were lucky to just survive. Because of the economic burden put upon them, they had little time for the joys of life. As for how Russia was to be ruled, it is thought that the more autocratic czars were influenced by the Mongols, 
But that really doesn't hold a lot of water as we see the same thing going on in Europe and much of the world as feudalism was being extinguished and replaced with autocratic governments. While Russia was going through a great deal of civil strife due to the splintered appanage system pre-invasion, I can't give the Mongols credit for unifying the country into, as Ryazanovsky and Steinberg put it in their book, A History of Russia, quote, the influence of the Mongols in transforming weak and divided appanage Russia into a powerful, disciplined, and monolithic autocracy. Institutions, legal norms, and the psychology of Muscovite Russia have all been described as a legacy of Genghis Khan, yet these claims can hardly stand analysis. Their argument against what they call the Eurasian historical interpretation is essentially that the Mongols stayed away from the Russians and their real influence was the destructive nature of their invasion and control. They had little culture to offer Russians, supposedly, didn't offer them religion or government. They had no formal writing or much of anything to really give to their subjects. As Pushkin wrote about the Mongols, they were, quote, Arabs without Aristotle and algebra. In looking at both sides of the argument, the Eurasian side, led by Verdansky, which believes that the Mongols had an influence on Russian history, or the other side, which is now championed uh, by Professor Steinberg, which believes that the influence they had was due to their destructiveness, not what they added, is what we've laid out for you today. But wait, there's yet another thought, and that is that the Mongols had a huge influence on Russia, and it carries on to this very day. This point of view comes from the somewhat controversial but always entertaining works from Professor Orlando Figes. In his book, Natasha's Dance, he has a chapter that I found utterly fascinating, and I highly recommend the book to anyone who's interested in the cultural aspects of Russia. The chapter was Descendants of Genghis Khan. In it, he lays out the influence in his typically brilliant fashion. As Napoleon said, Scratch a Russian, and you'll find a Tatar. And he wasn't kidding. When researching this topic, only in Fiji's book do we find a discussion of family names of Russians as evidence of deep Mongol influence. He writes that there are four main groups of Mongol descendants. Here are the names of famous Russians descended from the remnants of the Golden Horde. They include, quote, writers like Karamizin, Turgenev, Bulkagov, and Akhtamatova. And we have philosophers like Chadeyev, Kirivsky, Berdeyev, statesmen like Boris Gudunov, Bukharnin, Tukhachevsky, and composers like Rimsky-Korsakov. Others with a family name with a Turkic origin included Rachmaninov and Kutuzov. Remember General Kutuzov, both of whom who came from the second wave of Tatar origin from the West. Kutuz is the Turkic word for furious or mad, which somewhat fits the great Russian general Mikhail Kutuzov. The third category are those with mixed Slavic and Tatar ancestry. When you hear these names, you hear the names of some of the most famous families in Russian history, like the Shermedovtevs, excuse the pronunciation, Stroganovs, and Rostopochins. Also, we have the famous novelist Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol, whose family name derives from the Chuvash word Gogol, which is a stepland bird. Then you have the families whose names were changed to a more Turkic-sounding one. 
And this was very fashionable between the 15th and 17th centuries at the court of the Tsar. And I had really interesting reasons why they wanted to change their names. It's because there was a, they wanted to buy land from the peoples there. Uh, they were trying to take over uh, different manors and, and houses and things like that. And with a Turkic name, they had better luck with the people in those areas as Russia was expanding. Now, many of the Mongols settled into different areas of Russia after the invasion and created new tribes after the Golden Horde disintegrated. You have the Kazakhs, Uzbeks, Kalmyks, and the Kyrgyz. Vladimir Ilyich Lenin was a descendant of the Kalmyks who left the Horde and stayed on the steppe. The Turkish word Kalmak means to stay. Lenin's paternal grandfather, Nikolai Ulyanov, came from Astrakhan. A few of my friends have commented that after they learned this and re-looked at a picture of Lenin, which I recommend you do, they can see the Mongol in him. may help to explain some of his barbaric behavior, though. Another issue Phyges has is with the idea that the Mongols had not given the Russians anything culturally or organizationally. He argues that if you look at the archaeological digs near the old capital Sarai, which is near Volgograd, it, quote, showed that the Mongols had the capacity to develop large urban settlements with palaces and schools, well-laid-out streets, and hydraulic systems, craft workshops, and farms. I have a bit of a problem with Phyges giving the Mongols credit here, is that oftentimes they were not the ones who created the cities or buildings or systems, but artisans captured when invading different countries. If we go back to their initial lifestyle in the steppe of Mongolia, we don't see anything like the city of Sarai. A case in point were the siege engines that used they used to conquer uh, some of the Russian fortified towns. The Mongols didn't develop them. They got them after taking over China and then imported them. Now, of course, the converse argument can be made that while the Mongols didn't originate something, doesn't mean that they had no hand in spreading it and influencing a country like Russia. So, Phyges may be right in this version of things. Now, starting with Peter the Great, the Russians wanted to be accepted by Europe as an equal, yet that was not happening as those in the West believed that Russia was Asiatic in nature, and surely not European. Problem was, most of Russian land is really in Asia, and the people who lived there, for the most part, spoke Asian languages and followed many of the customs. There was a saying that anything east of the Nevsky Prospect in St. Petersburg was, quote, Asiatic barbarism by which Petersburg is constantly besieged. This attitude is very similar to New Yorkers. They think that anything west of the Hudson River is the wild, wild west. Even in music, we have Oriental influences and hence Mongol influences. One given by Professor Phyges is Borodin's Prince Igor and the Polovetsian Dances. He points out that the melodies come from Chuvash, Bashkir, Hungarian, Algerian, Tunisian, and Arabian melodies. Also, a lot of Russian music of the 19th century uses what is known as the pentatonic scale, sometimes called the Indo-Chinese scale. This scale was used by followers of the Malakirev National School. These include composers Rimsky-Korsakov and Igor Stravinsky. As for art and literature, there are again Mongol or Oriental influences throughout Russia. Then we have the Cossacks, who, like the Mongol warriors, were excellent horsemen and were nomadic for much of their history. 
Many were of a Mongol origin, as well as many other groups that blazed through their lands, like the Huns and the Avars. Today we see some of the influences in current events, like the annexation of Crimea by Russia. Crimea, as you recall, was for a long time a connate split from the Golden Horde, as well as being a thorn in the side of Russia. And I'm going to leave you today with the words of Fyodor Mikhailovich Dostoevsky, who in 1881, shortly before his death, wrote this in his writer's diary. Quote, Russia is not only in Europe, but in Asia as well. We must cast aside our servile fear that Europe will cause us Asiatic, or will call us Asiatic barbarians, and say that we are more Asian than European. This mistaken view of ourselves as exclusively Europeans and not Asians, and we have never ceased to be the latter, has cost us very dearly over these two centuries, and we have paid for it by the loss of our spiritual independence. It is hard for us to turn away from our window on Europe, but it is a matter of our destiny. When we turn to Asia with our new view of her, something of the same sort that may happen to us as happened to Europe when America was discovered. For in truth, Asia for us is that same America, which we still have not discovered. With our push towards Asia, we will have renewed upsurge of strength and spirit. In Europe, we were hangers-on and slaves, while in Asia, we shall be the masters. In Europe, we were Tatars, while in Asia, we can be Europeans. Our mission, our civilizing mission in Asia, will encourage our spirit and draw us on. The movement needs only to be started. Now, to be sure, my Russian relatives would have been horrified to be called Asiatic. But the honest truth is, many of us have Mongol blood in us. And instead of running away from that history, we should maybe, as Dostoevsky said, you know, maybe Russia and those with Russian ancestry should push towards our partly Asian roots to gain a better understanding of who Russians really are. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join me next time as I go in a completely different direction and discuss one of the most famous pieces of Russian music ever created, the 1812 Overture. And also, in the very near future, uh, yesterday I got a very nice uh, phone conversation with the podcast, my podcast father, Bob Packett, uh, from the History According to Bob, and we're going to be doing an interview with him and his feelings about Russian history and just his general thoughts it was just an exciting, you know, 15-minute conversation that I had with him. First time, and, and you know, thanks to some of the listeners out there who kind of prodded me on his uh, Facebook site to contact him and do an, uh, you know, a interview with him because he just finished a series on the Crimean War. Well, this week I'd also like to publicly thank listener Brian, who not only gave the podcast a generous donation, he sent me a really thoughtful email thanking me for the podcast and giving him a different, for giving him a different insight into Russia and its history instead of, as he put it, American exceptionalism slash capitalism equals good and Russian communism equals bad mantra of the past. And yes, Brian, I do believe my Russian history professor, Dr. Paul Average, would have been proud of the podcast. Although knowing him, he still would have gotten on me about my poor Russian language skills. Well, don't forget... Join us on Facebook, where we top the 1,000 follower list this week, where you can ask a question, leave a comment, or make a suggestion. So now, as always, Das Vidanya y Spasiba Bolshoya.